Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Khalees, you're broadcasting in exile. Yes, I am. My partner tested positive for COVID, and I feel fine, and I've tested negative for a number of days now, but out of an abundance of caution, I've decided to rely on the miracle of modern technology and broadcast from home. Well, later in the show, we'll talk a little bit about what we know about protocols as they stand now, what to do when someone you've had close contact with tests positive for COVID in what is allegedly a post-pandemic world. Definitely not post-pandemic for me, and maybe that means staying home and ordering Chinese takeout. And we have just the person to talk to about that, the Newbery and Caldecott honor author-illustrator from Western Mass, Grace Lin. Her new book is Chinese Menu, the history, mythos, and legends behind your favorite foods. But first... To boldly go where no man has gone before. Saman, you were saying Chinese food in Pakistan is fancy, fancy food. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, over there, if you are going out to Chinese, I mean, it means you're going to a fancy restaurant. And I love Chinese food over there. But I know it's a bit different when you actually have Chinese food or whatever food here is in the U.S., the Chinese food. So as you can see, there are already a couple of sort of like, you know, variations happening in terms of what we are talking about. Layer upon (laughs) layer. And coming up a little bit later, we'll talk with Grace Lin about Chinese food, the Newbery and Caldecott honoree who's got a new book about Chinese food. But Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid, Mr. Universe, here doing some kitchen table astronomy at your Amherst kitchen table. Are we going to talk about mummified Mexican aliens today and that whole Mexican Congress that was presented right on the floor of Congress? A body of a what looks like E.T. Spielberg seems to have gotten it correct. Are we talking about that today? (laughs) I would love to, but no. But here is the thing. I actually really love that whole thing. And I also really found it, I would say, ironic, uh, the New York Times coverage of it. New York Times did put it on the front page, yeah. but but the way they said it was like, oh, it was completely unbelievable. I mean, who would sort of like to talk about this kind of mummified alien? And the tone of that article is like, you're right. But New York Times has been peddling the same kind of stories for a couple of years, including somebody who claimed that U.S. has, for example, alien bodies, alien pilots, and so on. Alien technology. Right. So that's the reason I love it. That, (laughs) oh, wait a minute. When this comes from another country, equally crazy in terms of the ideas, it goes like, oh, of course we don't believe that. Well, look, what what crazy idea is that? We'll Uh, wait till the peer-reviewed study of that comes out. That's right. But it depends upon the peers, man. (laughs) What we are going to talk about is a planet in the Goldilocks zone. This one looks just right. Astronomers don't just love fairy tales. They love to find planets outside of our solar system that might be able to host life, or at least life as we know it here on Earth. Right, and and this is actually a great example of, look, the way we were talking about, I mean, astronomers or scientists, like, you know, would love to find life elsewhere in the universe. And people spend their lives looking for even an extraterrestrial DNA or molecule, microbial life, anything sort of like, you know, that would be, they would give anything to have that. Just imagine for a second if something like this mummified alien or these extraterrestrial bodies, if people really, people who work in this thing, who have dedicated their lives, if they thought there was even a shred of sort of like credibility in there, They'd be popping bottles of champagne. Not, not just that, but but also looking for follow-up questions yeah. regarding these things rather than trying to find, hey, look, here is an exoplanet uh, that may or may not have life. And that just gives you a little bit of a taste 
of how science works. And I also think that in some ways, this is two different ways that people are thinking about aliens in the sense one is this public perception and some interest groups that are saying hey we have alien evidence and uh, on earth these alien bodies and so on and so forth and dod and the senate is spending money on it and and it gets great contract but then we have this other stuff taking place with james webb space telescope where which is much more sobering but i think much closer to what we actually know about one of them is real science and one of them appears to be hype one of them has better visuals, a mummified E.T. body <laughs> on the floor of the Mexican Congress. And the other one might be an infrared photograph that has been translated for the human eyes to see of something very far away. Right. So, so let's talk about that. But that's the reason I actually like the story about the mummified alien, because it goes like, OK, well, you take this. Well, let's make it even more extreme. And, yeah. and then how do you feel about that? Right. No, so to me, it's there. But what I want to talk about, again, we should not forget how exciting this field is. What a special time we are living and what an amazing telescope James Webb is. So there is a, an exoplanet uh, which, go, which uh, orbits a star which is known as K2-18. This was discovered by the Kepler Space Telescope. Uh, this planet around it, it's called K2-18b. So the first planet that gets discovered gets a small b as a designation. It's about 120 light years from Earth. It's bigger than Earth. It's a little bit smaller than Neptune. So as it turns out, these kinds of planets, the mini Neptunes, or uh, when planets are a little bit bigger than Earth, super Earths, they're actually very common in, the, in our galaxy, except that... Wookie. <laughs> Except that we don't uh, have them here in our own solar system. So we don't exactly know like mini Neptune is kind of like a gaseous planet or is it like a bigger rocky planet? So, mm -hmm. so we don't have a closer example. Uh, but this particular star, K2-18, is a red dwarf star. So it's much smaller than Earth. And again, these type of stars are much, much common in the universe. This particular planet orbits it in its habitable zone, which means that it receives a similar amount of heat as Earth does from our sun. So the size of the sun can be bigger and it can be hotter, let's say, and the planet is farther away, liquid water could exist there. Or it could be smaller and closer, liquid water could exist there. Not too hot, not too cold, just right. The Goldilocks Zone. This one looks just right. And it tasted just right, too. That's exactly right. So this planet happens to be in there. And it takes about uh, 30 days, 33-day orbit. So Earth, I mean, so this is, again, this is another way of thinking about it. Mm -hmm. It all makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, that the Earth, it takes 365 days uh, to go around. And so it's farther away from its star. Whereas this particular planet, K2-18b, it's much closer and it takes about 33 days to orbit. So that's, okay, so we've had other planets that we have discovered. All it takes is you can actually calculate what type of a star it is and how far it is from that star to be in a habitable zone. That is not the most exciting part so far. What's interesting here is that uh, Hubble Space Telescope had observed it and had found maybe a hint of an ocean on this planet, maybe. And so uh, this was in 2019. Uh, they call it a Hycean planet. And what that meant was basically that it has 
probably an ocean or, or a lot of water, uh, water, maybe water vapor form. Again, we exactly don't know, but with a hydrogen-rich atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And we don't have that thing, and so it was like really an interesting planet. But now, James Webb Space Telescope, for obvious reasons, this was one of the important targets, and its first results have just come out, and they have detected methane and carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And again, just by themselves, I mean, of course, they can be produced by in natural processes either, but it also does not have much ammonia, which again leads to this combination, suggests it's, more, it's, it's a more interesting planet uh, that we think it might be. And James Webb Space Telescope can actually, because through spectroscopy, it can actually measure what is in the atmosphere, which is an amazing thing to do uh, because you don't see the planet. You actually still see the light from the star. But as the planet goes in front of it, it eclipses the star a little. We don't see the planet. We only see a dip in the light of the star. But in this particular case, as the starlight passes through the atmosphere of the passing planet, we see the kind of molecules that are in there. And spectroscopy uses the color spectrum, right? You can tell by the different colors that emanate from that starlight going through the atmosphere of that planet, what that atmosphere is made up of. Methane, carbon dioxide, huge on this planet, destroying it currently, <laughs> but <laughs> indicative of the fact that we're alive here. Well, and, and so, so basically those molecules are absorbing light. And so every molecule, the way it absorbs light, for example, it gives it signature because every molecule, just like fingerprints, has its particular signature. So that's how we can actually detect whether it's carbon dioxide or methane and things like that. So that is all very exciting. Scientists think, well, this is great, but there is one more detection of a molecule. That is what is getting people excited. This is dimethyl sulfide or DMS. And this particular molecule here on Earth is only produced by life. Mm -hmm. And in fact, much more particularly from plankton in a marine environment. So now you can see sort of like, you know- Big ocean, like, plankton, marine environment. Exactly, and we know, for example, you have life here around volcanic vents, uh, underground, under sort of under the ocean and so on and so forth. So you go like, wait a minute, this could be an interesting place. So I wanna caution people here because this detection is not fully confirmed. And we have examples, for example, in Venus, the detection of phosphine. It turned out to be an error in the measurements, and it's unclear whether there was phosphine or not. They're going to be- I thought there might be aliens in the clouds of Venus for a short amount of time there, which would have been awesome. Exactly, which may still turn out to be true, but right now, but those measurements were turned out to be false, uh, false detection. So I don't want people to immediately go like, oh my goodness, we found life. No. And James Webb Space Telescope is scheduled to do many follow-up observations of this particular planet. And so it's an exciting, tantalizing, I would say, hint. But if dimethyl sulfide is there and it, is, it gets confirmed because follow-up observations can actually go, there is a hint of it here, then you can do more and you go like, oh yeah, it is there. Then of course, and this is how science works, a lot of the scientists will try to show, can it be produced naturally without life? Or is it really potential life, and if it is there, what other molecules you would expect to come out in detection, sort of like, you know, along with dimethyl sulfide. But this is certainly an interesting place 
and maybe, maybe this is giving a hint of life, but not yet. But if I can just close down the loop, just think about how carefully people are looking for this thing, confirmation. Is there any way we can explain it other than life and so on and so forth and contrast that with congressional hearings about aliens and also about this which I love, this mummified Mexican alien, which was from Peru, by the way. There is a whole oh. thing of how it came from Peru. That's a whole other story <laughs> to that. Obviously, this alien likes to travel. So this 110 light year away <laughs> planet with oceans, that's where the mummified Mexican aliens go on vacation. That would be funny. It's, it's where it comes back to life and it says, K218B, my home world. Home. You're right. That's E.T.'s home. <laughs> Up next, the Newberry and Caldecott Honor author-illustrator from Western Mass, Grace Lin. Her new book is Chinese Menu, The History, Mythos, and Legends Behind Your Favorite Foods. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Cleese Smith. We welcome to the show Grace Lynn. Her novel, Where the Mountain Meets the Moon, was awarded the 2010 Newbery Honor and was a New York Times bestseller. Grace's early reader, Ling and Ting, was awarded with the Theodore Geisel Honor in 2011. And her picture book, A Big Mooncake for Little Star, was awarded the 2019 Caldecott Honor. As well as occasionally reviewing for the New York Times, Grace has become an advocate for diversity. She's a commentator for us here at NEPM and created the video essay, What to Do When You Realize Classic Books from Your Childhood Are Racist, for PBS NewsHour. (laughs) I would say not burn them. (laughs) I'm kidding. Yeah, we can put them in a very special (laughs) section of the library, perhaps. Uh, Her new book is Chinese Menu, the history, mythos, and legends behind your favorite food. And Grace will be part of a moon festival celebration on September 30th at the Eric Carle Museum of Picture Book Art, right across the river from where she lives in Amherst. That's on September 30th. Welcome, Grace. Thank you so much for coming in. Oh, thanks so much for having me. People in the <laughs> building were all excited because they know of your reputation for doing the commentaries for NEPM and as well as for PBS and more. So you are a rock star, uh, our friend Jerry <laughs> said, uh, who was Aww. excited to see you come in here. And the new book, Chinese Menu, it's gorgeous. It's big. Mm. And because of who locally um, is kind of advocating and, and publicizing the book, the Eckes Group, I assumed it was going to be a cookbook. We did a story for the uh, Fabulous 413 a couple months ago about how Lisa Eckes has the world's largest cookbook collection. And we got a little bit of a teaser about this book when we went to go visit. Yeah, but- they had a they had a, um, one of the, the first copies and it was on the table. And I went, I know about this book. How? How do I know about this book? <laughs> and the cover is just so gorgeous with two blue dragons and a young person holding up a bowl of soup where you can see into the soup an image of what looks like a Chinese home. But tell us... If this is not a cookbook, 
What is Chinese Menu, Grace? Yes, Hannah? so it's not a cookbook. It's not even a picture book. It's actually a collection of stories. So it's a collection of stories. Of, there's it's almost like 300 pages long. The book. There's, um, there's over 40 stories in it. Um, what I like to tell people is like when you go into a Chinese restaurant and you open up a menu and you see all the names of the dishes. Uh, not only are those names. Of dishes, but those are actually names of stories. There's a story behind every dish in your Chinese menu, and this book are the stories. And some of those stories are historic and verifiable, and some of them are historish <laughs> and embellished uh, by your uh, ability to storytell. You're um, an incredible storyteller. Your book, uh, Where the Mountain Meets the Moon, is just such an incredible story and such a beautifully illustrated story and that storytelling ability comes through here as does the illustrations it's not a picture book but there are tons and tons of illustrations in this yes this book uh was really really a labor of love (laughs) (laughs) i love chinese food so hopefully you had to go and eat lots of all the things that you wrote about in here yes that was a consolation prize while i was (laughs) working so hard (laughs) and i have to say like one of the things I was really impressed by, I mean, the whole book is really amazing, but I was intrigued by your bibliography and I was like looking through all of your sources going, oh, I subscribe to that channel. Oh, I read this blog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's an intense bibliography there too. So it's a good, this is kind of, it could become one of the go-to sources about where Chinese food and its names, especially in English on American Chinese food menus, uh, came from, right? Yeah, well, that's what I'm kind of hoping. Well, I was kind of hoping uh, there's a very famous book called Dulaire's Greek Myths. Uh, if you, if anybody loves Greek myths, they know this book. It's basically the go-to book for Greek myths. And when I was proposing this book to my publisher, I said, I want to do like Dulaire's Greek Myths but for Chinese food. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what did they say then? And they were like, I uh, don't get it. <laughs> but I think slowly, now that they see the book in front of them, I think they, I think we all agree that we made a beautiful book. But I, it did, I think it's one of those books that when you first, when you talk about it, it's hard to get across what, what it is. But then when you see it and hold it in your hands, you understand and you get it right away. We're speaking with Grace Lynn, the author behind Chinese Menu, the history, myths, and legends behind your favorite foods. She's from Northampton now. Yes. Was drawn in by the, uh, I like to call it the Eric Carl mm-hmm. uh, tractor beam, perhaps. And <laughs> the part, magnet. Yeah, part of the many wonderful author illustrators that live here in our area. And one of the ways the book starts out that's really interesting is talking about the origin of chopsticks. Various stories about where chopsticks might have come from, but most of which have to do with the potential danger that your food may uh, (laughs) inflict upon you if you don't eat it with something like a chopstick. Yes. Okay. So the story you're referring to is how chopsticks can detect poison, (laughs) which uh, was a big uh, myth in my family that my dad used to pretend. He'd be like, let me check with my chopstick. (laughs) It was just an excuse for him to eat your food. (laughs) Pretty much. I call it a childhood tax. That's the way that I explain it when I eat my children's food. But But, um, but it actually has roots in a historic, well, in a legendary story. I don't know how historical. I mean, <laughs> historical-ish <Yes>. story. <laughs> Where uh, there was this minister who basically was going to be poisoned by his wife, but uh, was saved by his chopsticks that turned smoky brown when he touched the poisoned meat. So uh, ever since then, uh, emperors ate with silver chopsticks to make sure that their food wasn't poisoned. 
Ah, it becomes silver, <laughs> which is the usual material that people use for, for poison detection. Yeah, I don't know if my wooden chopsticks will detect poison or not, but it's, it's worth a, cho- uh, uh, a shot, I think. Yes. One thing that the book, I don't know if I missed it, or but where does the word chop in chopsticks have to do with chop as in chop suey? Or I didn't... I, where does the chop of chopsticks come from? Oh, that is a really good question. And I think chopsticks is really just uh, an American transliteration, yeah. you know, uh, probably because the Chinese word is quite or like it's it, which is like um, which I think is just the way that we we translated it. Uh, so but it would make sense. I would love to say that there is a myth, which I think I could just make up right now, <laughs> that it's called chopsticks because all the food is chopped up, you know, ah. in, in, on the dishes, um, which also I could probably uh, pull out different uh, real, real historical facts because Chinese food is always cut up in teeny tiny pieces because um, Confucius thought that having forks and knives on the table was uncivilized, that he felt like those were weapons. And that's why he really encouraged people to use chopsticks. And so that's why all the food is cut up so small, because you, you shouldn't have forks and knives on the table. Uh-huh. <laughs> Speaking with Grace Lin, the author of the new book, Chinese Menu, the history, myths, and legends behind your favorite foods. She's from Northampton. She's going to be doing an event at the Eric Carle Museum in Amherst, a moon festival celebration a little bit later this month on September 30th. <laughs> Police. Okay, well, uh, so I was looking through your Instagram because I was intrigued. Like this, there it's not necessarily like a picture book, but there are illustrations in it. And there's this beautiful combination between woodblock style paint, uh, style pictures and painting paintings. And I was curious about that juxtaposition. I know both of them are in your style. There's videos of you making wood blocks, which is really cool. But um, talk about using both of those and why it's important for, it was important for you to use both of them instead of focusing on one. So uh, like you said, the book is uh, has two styles of illustrations in them. Uh, so the book is separated into sections, just like a menu. So there's a dessert section that has all the stories about desserts. There's an appetizer section that has all the stories about appetizers. And uh, the section dividers are uh, traditional paintings that I did with uh, paint, paintbrush, um, <clears throat> paper. Uh, and those um, I did... Uh, uh, inspired by um, like old 1900 uh, Chinese advertisings. Uh, I don't know if I describe it, you might it might come to your head. You know, it's usually like a beautiful lady in a in a ch- in a Chinese dress holding right. like <laughs> holding like a tin of salmon or something. <laughs> you know, so and I tried to kind of use that as an inspiration. Um, and if you re- remember those, they're very ornate. Um, the the Chinese style is kind of like more is more, <laughs> so so it's like very like uh, like lots of details, very um very elaborate borders, mm-hmm. um and so uh at first I wanted to do all the illustrations like that, uh, oh. like the whole book, but I just uh, did not have the time. It just takes me so long to do that kind of style painting. And um, when push came to shove, I realized that. Um, I was going to have to figure out a different way to illustrate the stories that would actually be feasible. And so actually, the I'm, I'm glad that you think that the um, <clears throat> story illustrations are woodblocks because they are not. Oh. It's actually my first foray 
into computer art. I've never done computer art before until until now. And um, it's not even really computer art in the way that most illustrators use computer art uh, because <laughs> I drew it all by hand um, and, uh, and then I scanned it in, I cleaned it up a little bit. And then what's really just... Uh, and it's just really colored in the computer. It's mm-hmm. still just it's still drawn by hand, but the the color is put in by the computer. And I used um, a lot of la- Chinese labels as inspiration for that. So um, so there's the Chinese advertisement of the salmon, right, where you have that beautiful lady holding the salmon, and then you right. look at the actual salmon tin <laughs> of the Chinese <laughs> the sa- Chinese salmon, and then uh, that's where I took the inspiration for the black and the less less colored illustrations, the story illustrations. Yeah. But those are gorgeous, too. Mm -hmm. And the beautiful illustrations of the food itself. Like, there's not that, like standard pictures of of the food but your paintings mm-hmm. of them which is wonderful yes and also a great excuse to go out for chinese food <laughs> i can write off all of this chinese food because i'm going to go home and paint it exactly it's research materials yeah. <laughs> we're speaking with author and illustrator and newbery and caldecott honor winner grace lynn who lives in northampton you went to RISD, rhode island school of design and knew kind of right after that that you wanted to pursue doing children's books? You know, I went to Rhode Island School of Design with the sole purpose of going into children's books. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> I knew that Chris Van Allsburg and David McCauley uh, taught at RISD, and that's uh, yeah. actually, actually why I wanted to go there. Of course, when I by the time I got in, neither of them were teaching there anymore. So. <laughs> <laughs> what, what were the children's books that let you know that you wanted to go and pursue this yourself? Oh, wow. There's so many books that I loved as a child. Um, My favorite book that I loved as a child um, was called The Little House by Virginia Lee Burton. (laughs) And then about this little house that lived lived in the country or was in the country and then the city grew around it. And then it was really sad, but it was eventually able to go back to the country. (laughs) So there's so many stories like that, that books like that, that stayed with me that I still like I could actually probably tell you that story more in detail. Um, But (laughs) But the fact is, like, I remember that so vividly. And the idea that now at, I won't reveal my age, but so many years later, (laughs) that I can remember that so vividly is really what made me want to go into children's books. It's that realization that the books that made the most impact on me were the ones that I read as a child. And the idea that maybe something that I made could do that for another child was is really what made me want to do children's books. I was think it I remember the, that book. I'm looking at a picture of it right now. It does ring a bell. But was it a combination of the images and the words? Because I remember distinctly like reading the Ramona books and trying to draw the cover illustration from that and, and how big an impact both that like cover illustration and the words themselves had on me. Yes, definitely. It was really both the words and the pictures. Um, I think... Um, I decided I wanted to make books when I was like in seventh grade after I had won uh, fourth place in this national book contest. Oh, nice. And, oh. Um, and so I knew I wanted to make books. But somehow by the time I graduated from high school, I decided it was the illustrations I wanted to focus on. I, I had fallen in love more with the pictures. But then, strangely enough, um, after I graduated from RISD as an illustrator, um, I started my foray to the writing and actually more people know me as an author now than an illustrator (laughs) well I think that like I mentioned uh, Where the Mountain Meets the Moon is such an amazing combination of both of those things that you do both exquisitely well and both of those things come out exquisitely well in your new book Chinese Menu speaking with Grace Lynn about the history myths and legends behind your favorite foods 
we're going to take a break, and then we're going to talk about some of those myths that people have about Chinese food in America, about the names of some of the Chinese food, and more. You're listening to the Fabulous Four One Three on NAPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, offering solar options, energy security, and solutions for the local community. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. Paul Simon was quoted in Rolling Stone magazine back in 1970. Know where the words to this song came from? He said, you never would have guessed. I was eating in a Chinese restaurant downtown and there was a dish called Mother and Child Reunion. It's a chicken and egg dish. And I said, oh, I love that title. I got to use that. So <laughs> even Paul Simon inspired by the uh, the myths and legends behind the <laughs> the menu items and Chinese food menu. As an addendum, though, there's a there's a Japanese dish that does the same, oyakodon. It's parent and child dish. It's chicken and eggs stewed together. You put it on rice. If only Paul Simon had named his song that. I mean... That would have been harder. Yes. <laughs> and we are speaking with Grace Lin, the author and illustrator, Newbery and Caldecott honor author, behind Chinese Menu, a, gr- a great new book. It's a coffee table-sized book that's just come out, The History, Myths, and Legends Behind Your Favorite Foods. And like Mother and Child Reunion, which is not covered in this book, there are many menu items that people have heard of before that are ch- uh, covered in this book that you go and delve into the, the myths and legends behind. Khalees, do you have one that's favorite of yours that you want to talk about first before I jump uh, into this or no? Uh, of, of, of dishes that are covered in the book? Yeah. I mean, it's mabo. It's mabo tofu. Yeah. Because it is like my favorite. And I love that story anyhow, but like hearing, having it in a new context, um, especially like with the, the woman's husband, like I just know it as pockmarked grandmother tofu and your story really brought it to life. Can you tell us a little bit about that story sure. that you wrote and yes. how you uh, <laughs> expanded upon the Mapu Tofu story? Yeah, so there's actually many, many stories about Mapu Tofu, um, and uh, they, but they're all very, very similar. And so I kind of took all those stories and pu- pushed them together in one. And so the story goes that there is once a woman who was a wonderful chef, um, uh, but and who had um, pockmarked skin because as a child she had smallpox, uh, but, but her husband was a very kind person and they opened a restaurant but she always was in the back room cooking uh, so nobody ever saw her disfigurement uh, but unfortunately he passed away and so she had to come out in the front room and try to uh, have the restaurant by herself but unfortunately when people saw her pockmarked skin they were uh, they were unfortunately disgusted and they stopped coming to her restaurant and she became very, very poor. Then one day out of the blue, a stranger came to town and stopped at her restaurant. 
And he was he from another since he was very well traveled was not uh, deterred by her scarred face, and she made him a delicious dish, mapo tofu, and it was so good that when he went to town, he told everybody about. It. He's like, "Have you tasted that the dish at that restaurant?" And all the villagers and were saying, "Oh, we don't eat there because of because of her face." And he said, "You are all ridiculous. She's just a nice pockmarked grandmother," and she he kind of shamed them all and they all and just his words calling her pockmarked grandmother uh, made them look at her in a different light and they all went to go try her food and uh, loved it and instead of thinking of her as a pariah she became a beloved figure in the town and with food that they still eat to this day I mean I think one of the things I love about the way that you retell this is how the fable aspects of it like there's a lot of almost Aesop-ish like aspects to many of the stories in here where it's not just the story behind the the dish itself but there's a little lesson for everybody mm-hmm. <laughs> along the way <laughs> what i love about that story is that it just took one person to change everyone's opinion of her and i just feel like that's such a beautiful uh lesson, even though it was never supposed to be a lesson story, but it's such a beautiful lesson for kids to take away, to realize you just need one person to describe someone in a different way, and all of a sudden, you can see them differently. We're speaking with Grace Lin, whose new book is Chinese Menu, the history, myths, and legends behind your favorite foods. One of the stories that I really like is when you explain about the difference, the transliteration confusion behind Peking duck, <laughs> um, but how there is an actual, so it's a, it's a bad translation of Beijing, essentially, right? Yes. <laughs> but that there's an actual kind of duck yes. that may have then been in, in named after the bad transliteration. Could you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> yes. So Peking duck is the dish that we all eat now, uh, which is really funny because there it's, na- it's supposed to be named after the capital city of China, uh, which is Beijing, not Peking. But for years and years and years, uh, we transliterated Beijing as Peking. So that's why it became Peking duck. Uh, and the actual duck, that uh, the type of duck that is bred for this is called a Peking duck too, uh, also <laughs> probably from this bad transliteration. And so really, uh, it's so funny because there is really no Peking, but there is a Peking duck. <laughs> that There's um, a little bit of that lost in trans, or rather um, many possible translations that comes in the hot and sour soup story too. Yes, the hot and sour soup story. Uh, the hot and sour soup is that's a very complicated story. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm trying to figure out how to exactly tell that in a over the air uh, because it's it's one of those stories that's easier to read because uh, it talks about the etymology of of um, hot and sour soup and basically how it was originally supposed to be kind of showing that it was a soup that was not a Han Chinese soup. So it was almost like a, it's like a foreign soup. Um, And so uh, yet as time went on, uh, people um, and uh, Han Chinese were not the rulers during the Qing dynasty. Uh, People didn't like, the rulers did not like that it was called something that was non 
Han Chinese, and so they asked them to change the name. <laughs> so it's it's a very complicated story. So I, I would I would refer you to read that one in the book. <laughs> yes, and the book is called Chinese Menu: The History, Myths, and Legends Behind Your Favorite Foods. It is written by our guest Grace Lin and illustrated beautifully as well. And it is a history book in a lot of ways. You will learn about the different times when the Mongols ruled China versus this dynasty and that dynasty. Um, and yet, almost every single chapter talks about your personal relationship with those dishes. So hot and sour soup was not something that you grew up eating or liking very much until it came into yes. help heal you in yes, a way, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. It was like when I was sick, finally, uh, like in college, when I was sick and I ate it and it cleared my sinuses, <laughs> I realized I like this soup after all. Yeah. <laughs> so you get a little taste of the personal in Grace Lynn's life as well as the historical and, and the fantastical. Um, and your own background and your own family's background and its relationship with food and Taiwan and China have changed over the course of your life. And that is woven into this book as well and maybe um, is kind of hinted to with the, the General So's Chicken, which is one of the most popular Chinese food menu items across the country and maybe even across the globe. I know. General Tso's Chicken is another very twisted story, which mm-hmm. uh, I would also recommend that you read <laughs> in the book. However, I'll try to give you a kind of like a, a small encapsulation of it because uh, there really is a General Tso, um, and he really did exist. However, he has nothing to do with this chicken dish. He never ate it. He didn't invent it, uh, and it's not even exactly known if he even liked chicken. <laughs> However, uh, it, their, General Tso's chicken was invented by a Taiwanese chef when Taiwan was called the Republic of China. And uh, when, during that time, the, Taiwan was having a big state dinner, uh, which the United States was attending. And of course, the chef there really wanted to have delicious food. He really wanted to impress these dignitaries. And so he created a whole new dish, a chicken dish. And after he created it, he was very proud of it. And he's like, I need to give this chicken dish a name, a name with with dignity, a name that's got respect. And so he thought about his hometown and he was from the Hunan province. And uh, General Tso is actually a big folk hometown hero in the Hunan province. So he said, I will call it General Tso's chicken because General Tso is a great man. (laughs) And so that's why he called it General Tso's chicken because he thought that that just sounded like a really good name with a lot of respect and a lot of power. And, uh, And he served at the dinner and and it went even further than that. But that is probably the, <laughs> the, the origin of General Tso's chicken. And you and your family um, are from Taiwan yes. originally. Your family was from Taiwan. They came over in the 60s. Is that right? Uh, yes. Well, late 60s. Yes. Uh-huh. And uh, <laughs> you were born here. And because of the politics between Taiwan and China, your family has gone from identifying as Chinese to Taiwanese, right? Exactly. When I was a child, uh, we they told us we were Chinese because Taiwan was the Republic of China. And so all during my childhood, uh, I told people I was Chinese. I'm Chinese. I'm Chinese. And in fact, I still do that to this day out of habit. It was only like in in um, college, you, you know, after I was out of the house, my parents were like, oh, by the way, we're Taiwanese. <laughs> <laughs> And so it's very hard for me, especially when I'm talking to people and I get like anxious or nervous to remember. I'm like, oh, I'm Taiwanese, actually. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> but it's nice that your book also brings up the regionalism of China, too, because people may not necessarily know. Like they'll see Hunan or Sichuan on, on a menu, but not realize like how many different regions, how many different styles and how far apart those places are from each yeah. other. Yeah, well. 
it's interesting because during this, uh, I've been talking to a lot of people about this book, and one of the big things is rice, right? A lot of people just naturally think Chinese food and rice go together. And that is true. But the thing is that rice is really important in southern China. I was going to say, the northern China, it's wheat. Yeah, it's noodles in northern China. You know, it's just because the first immigrants that came here to the United States happened to be from southern China. So rice became uh, synonymous with Chinese food here in the United States. And one of the things that you talk about in this book, too, is about the immigration to this country, about the Chinese Exclusion Act, the only time the United States has specifically targeted a specific people group uh, and tried to ban their immigration, but that restaurants were a loophole for people who were coming over from China to this country. Yes, and so that's why Chinese restaurants flourished here, because it was the, and that was the way that uh, Chinese immigrants could flourish here was by opening restaurants, or at least survive, if not flourish. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, if I remember correctly, I saw um, David Chang had a big thing on his Ugly Delicious Netflix show about some of these Chinese food restaurants, especially in the early to mid part of the 20th century, are these opulent palaces. They mm-hmm. look incredible because they were held to a higher standard, right, about yes. how those restaurants needed to look if they were going to come over here. Yes. And so, yeah. Well, it's interesting how Chinese food has really, uh, the, our perception in America of Chinese food has really gone up, gone through many, many stages. You know, uh, through at one point, Chinese food was considered uh, very upper class and classy, like you had to go eat at a Chinese restaurant to be considered culture, but cultured. But like, unfortunately, now I think most people see Chinese food as like kind of cheap food, you know, which is which is really sad because Chinese cuisine has such a rich culture, which I'm trying to show in this book. And it's also just as difficult to prepare and to make as, say, French food, which we all hold in high esteem. It was interesting to hear Salman Hamid's take about Pakistan, where that is the case with Chinese food, where going out to a Chinese food restaurant is still considered a, a very fancy experience. Khalees? Well, I think that there is, I mean, I, I have I have fought tooth and nail about my I, for my ideas about American Chinese and how it is its own thing. Uh, but I think, like, there are definitely some places where that's still the echelon. Like, I'm thinking of, like, Mark's Peking Duck House in, in D.C. and, like, a lot of places that you'll find in, like, various Chinatowns. Like, there's there's still some of that there. And I I feel like we just kind of have to broaden our perspective on what the entire spectrum of, of Chinese food really is and does here. Yeah, I think it's an interesting thing. Um, you know, I've told this story before, but uh, the big reason why I wanted to do this book was because back in 2004, uh, I did a picture book for young kids uh, called Fortune Cookie Fortunes. And in that book, that's when I found out that fortune cookies are a completely Asian-American invention. Mm -hmm. And when I told people this, uh, you know, this is back in 2004, so it was still kind of new new facts back then. And so (laughs) so when I told people, like, oh, do you know that the fortune cookie is a completely Asian-American invention? Uh, Most people would say things like, uh, so... Fortune cookies aren't even really Chinese. And I always felt really bad for the fortune cookie because I could, as uh, Asian American myself, as somebody who had a very tenuous relationship with her racial identity, I could really see some people saying that about me, like, oh, she's not really Chinese. Right. And I felt like, oh, you know, there's nothing wrong with being 
uh, Asian American. And there's nothing like this. This food actually, fortune cookies should be proud. They're probably one of the first Asian American foods ever, you know. Mm-hmm. And I kind of felt like um, this food, this American food with Asian roots. Deserved more respect, and so that's why I did the book with the idea that uh, hopefully this book will give this American food with Asian roots more respect, and you know, with the hope that that trickles out to people who have American friends with Asian roots, and they give them more respect as well. <laughs> <laughs> the book has certainly gave me a whole new perspective on the kind of Chinese food that I grew up eating, which I would have thought of as inauthentic Chinese food. Now, just have to think of it as American Chinese food. Exactly. It's its own thing, like fortune cookies, which you, Grace Lynn, have been kind enough to bring into the studio. Khalees, who is broadcasting in exile, I'm going to open your um, fortune cookie right now. Uh, and then you have to put um, for the revolution at the end. Okay, for yours, I'll put for the re- For those who don't know, one of the things that I like to do is when you read a fortune cookie, fortune, if you say in bed at the end, it usually makes it inappropriately dirty. But you can also say for the revolution at the end. So here's Khalees's fortune cookie from Grace Lin, who's got a new book called Chinese Menu, The History, Myths, and Legend Behind Your Favorite Foods, including Chinese uh, fortune cookies, which are, oh, I love this. I I read the back first. (laughs) Reading only one book is like eating only one noodle for the revolution. Thank God that wasn't the in bed one right there. I love it. And then, can I have mine? Okay, so this will be mine right here. You want to read yours? Did you? We'll see what's on it. (laughs) This is the most fun kind of tradition, (laughs) even though it's not an authentic Chinese tradition, maybe. It's an authentic American Chinese tradition. Grace, are these from the batch that you made for your book opening? I was going to tell them after that, yes. Instagram is real. (laughs) Go ahead. Okay, mine says... Reading about food while you are eating makes it taste better. In, for the revolution? Okay, good. <laughs> yes. And mine says, you share food with friends. You share books with lifelong friends in bed. But the best part of these fortune cookies is it says on the back of them, read Chinese menu by Grace Lin, and then has a shameless plug taking you. Yes. Forget about the lucky numbers. Who needs those? This book... Oh. And what's your favorite dish that's you put in the book? Oh, my favorite dish that's in my book. Oh, well, my favorite story or my favorite dish? Let's see. Oh. My favorite dish would be the Peking duck uh, because it's I don't get to eat that often. That's a special occasion yeah, dish. Right. But the story of that is, is really fun because uh, a traditional Peking duck is always cut in 108 pieces uh, because, uh, because late in the Song Dynasty, there was an army of 108 eight men traveling in uh, traveling through a small village and needing food and they stopped at this restaurant and they said we need food every single one of us are hungry and the chef only had one duck and he knew better than to not feed every single soldier so he was very skillfully cut that duck into 108 pieces so every soldier got a slice <laughs> this is probably an unfair question as the last question grace lynn do you want to talk about your favorite chinese food restaurants where oh. we live here in the fabulous four hundred three, oh, okay. or you can you can plead the fifth. Oh no, there's there's plenty of really great Chinese restaurants that I love here. Um, so, 
The one that is closest to me um, is, and just I think recently opened, is Little Wall, and that's in Florence, Massachusetts. Related to Great Wall, which is also in Florence. Yes. And then uh, the one that I order from a lot is also Tea Roots, which is actually kind of more Taiwanese than Chinese. Pretty new one in Northampton. But uh, they have really great scallion pancakes. And then the one in Amherst that we go to for Chinese New Year because they often have lion dancers is Ginger Garden. Ah. Oh. And the, thumbs up from Betsy behind us about that particular one. And then <laughs> there's another one, which is really just noodles. Uh, it's called Lily's, um, and that one's oh, really good. Have, I took Monty <laughs> to Lily's like one of the first like weeks of the show. He'd never been. I'm a convert. For oh, sure that one's not. really good. If you like noodles, that's, that's where to go. And you can go there right after you go to the Moon Festival celebration on September 30th at the Eric Carle Museum of Picture Book Art, which will feature this book by Grace Lynn, Chinese Menu, The history, myths, and legends behind your favorite food. Thank you so much for joining us today, Grace Lynn. Coming up, Khalees is broadcasting in exile because someone she had direct contact with tested positive for COVID. We'll hear a little bit about what we can find out about current protocols in this alleged post-pandemic era. Yes, you're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. <laughs> Welcome back to the Fabulous Four on Three. I'm Monty, and I'm in the NEPM studios. And Khalees, you're not. I am not. I am at home because my partner tested positive for COVID. So just to be safe, I'm doing this from home, even though I've been negative four days. Betsy, pretty much ever since he got he, we found out he had COVID. Betsy Langto, our engineer, you have a young child, and they, your pediatrician, gave you some updated information about what to do because it seems like tons of people are testing positive for COVID all of a sudden. Yes, my pediatrician texted me last week and they were like, we've changed our policies about masking because they were previously mask free. And they said, if you feel sick, you have to wear a mask, which is a pretty basic one. And if you've been exposed to anyone who feels sick, regardless of if they tested positive for COVID or not, you have to wear a mask when you come in, which is an update. I uh, know that at Smith College, where my wife teaches, they have asked voluntarily for students to go back to wearing masks. Grace Lynn, you were saying that you were just flying all over the country and practically nobody was wearing masks. No, unfortunately not. Okay, yeah. so Khalees, your take now that you're you're in exile at home? Well, like, I've been masking along out of the way anyway, like, on flights and, like, going out into public. Like, I still mask up when I'm going to places with a lot of people, including concerts. So, like... This hasn't really changed for me. I feel like we're still kind of in the middle of a pandemic, but like I'm staying home to be keep my friends and our guests safe. So I'm doing the best that I can. Yeah, we didn't want to spring it on Grace Lynn that your partner at home had tested positive and we didn't tell her. So there you go. I went and did a, uh, I went to the CDC and looked up their most recent guidelines, which haven't been updated since May, I'll say. There is an ex- isolation and exposure calculator. <laughs> and I did it for you, Khalees. <laughs> I took all the information I knew about what he told me and plugged it in. It says, should I stay home? You do not need to stay home unless you develop symptoms. But you should get tested on or after September 21st because your first knowledge of this was on Friday. If right. you do not develop symptoms and you should wear a high quality mask around other people through September 25th, it says. Yes, that seems about right and normal. Well, I guess we won't be seeing you for a couple more days, but we luckily we've got the miracle of modern technology to help us. 
<laughs> so Tuesday on the Fabulous 413, former poet laureate of the United States, multidisciplinary author and Pulitzer Prize winner Rita Dove, I am so in awe. She's part of a panel discussion called Playlist for the Apocalypse at the Wit Festival in Lenox this week, titled for her book of the same name. And we'll talk to one of the founders of the Ashfield Film Festival, who is also the film editor behind the Back to the Future series, Harry Kamitas. Special thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, Star Trek, John Williams, Biz Marquis, Chops, and Jason Chu, Atlas Sound, and Joy Division. Our director is Tony Wormtown Time Dunn. Our engineers are Betsy, That Vacation Was Nowhere Near Long Enough, Lankto, Phil Quarantine Solidarity, Bishop, Kara, Traffic Goddess Foster, Bart, Passing the Comrades, Torch Rankin, and Punk, Rude Boy, Sharp, Cheddar, Dubay. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. We'll see you tomorrow on the Fabulous 413. Safely, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs>